0: Last night I was watching the the football game, the, the 49ers-Green Bay game. Uh, luckily, I only watched the fourth quarter. Uh, I probably should have been working on my message or doing other things, but I decided to turn the game on. And I found it interesting because uh, that 49ers team is an interesting team to watch. Uh, Green Bay was the number one seed. They had the best record. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, they had... Are, they have arguably the, the best uh, quarterback in the game, and here comes San Francisco that had to, uh, had to win their last game to make it into the playoffs. They, they don't have the best quarterback, uh, but they, what they did have was a, a really good special teams, and I think we, we forget that you know when you watch the game of football, there's three sides, there's, there's three-thirds to the game. There's the offense, the defense, and the special teams. And uh, with all that the 49ers didn't have, it was the special teams that, that blocked a punt and scored a touchdown. It was the special teams that blocked a field goal. It was, it was the 49ers that won the game because of their special teams. In, in light of, of what they didn't have, what they did have was enough to put them over the top. I, I just found that interesting as we look at what we are studying this morning well, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Zach. I'm the youth director here at uh, Restoration Church. And uh, I went to school at, at Corbin College in Salem, Oregon. And my first two years, I lived on, off, on campus. And then the, my last two years, I lived off campus. So, so junior year, I lived with a, with a group of guys. And, and it's interesting when you, when you live with a group of people, especially the, the kitchen dynamics, Right. You know, you always got to put your name on what's yours in the fridge, or else it's going to get eaten. I remember I had this roommate. I had had this roommate, Jared. And him and I, we were good buds. And and, uh, for whatever reason, someone, one of our roommates, was stealing his cheese sticks. And uh, we came up with this great idea. We're going to go, we're going to get a brand new box of cheese sticks. And instead of opening it, we're going to cut a hole in the back. And only you and I are going to know about this. So one day we're sitting down and, and uh, uh, one of our roommates walks in and he sits down on the couch. The one we suspected was stealing the cheese sticks. And uh, so we decided we're going to get up. We're going to go get a cheese stick. We get up. We go get our cheese stick. and Come back to the couch. And we sit down. And... Not long after, he gets up and walks into the kitchen, comes back, peeks around the corner, looks at us like, what's going on? How'd you you guys get that cheese stick? Oh, it's, we just went and got one out of the box. The the box isn't open. That's because we cut a hole in it, and we knew you were stealing. (laughs) But the next year, my senior year, I lived with a different group of guys, and, uh, our kitchen dynamics were a bit different. What we would do instead is we would put together a shopping list. We would put together a shopping list. A shopping list. Typically, the, the list would include uh, things like brownie mix, ice cream, uh, eggs, you know, steak, the important things. Uh, and then we would go to Winco, and we would shop, and we would, we would get what we needed. And at the end of the month, when we were paying our rent and everything, we would divvy up what the cost was, and, and, and then we would, we would pay our fair share. That way we could pool our resources and didn't have the hassle of uh, whose cheese stick is that, can I have one sort of thing. But one thing, a few things that were never on that list were, were things like flour and uh, sugar and baking soda or baking powder, basically anything that you could use to make uh, cookies wasn't generally on our list. And my roommate, John, he, he was engaged to, to be married uh, to, to his fiance, and, and she was a trained chef. She could cook anything. She could bake anything, do whatever. And I remember one night she was, she was at our apartment, and he says, um, I really want some cookies. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I really want some cookies, too, but I also wasn't going to go and ask my roommate's fiance to make me cookies. And uh, thankfully, she went in and, and all of a sudden, she starts, she starts making things. She starts baking things out of, out of nothing. We had nothing. There, there's no way we had what she needed. There's no, with four guys in their early 20s, a, a dozen eggs doesn't last long. We probably had a a packet of of hot dogs and, I don't know, some peanut butter or something. But she went in there, and I don't know what sorcery she used, but she made the most delicious cookies. I remember there was even like a hint of of, uh, citrus. Like, we must have had an orange in our kitchen that she used to make these cookies. See, sometimes I think Uh, We often think that the ingredients that we need to get what we aren't what we want aren't what we have We see we say things like if I only had If I only had more money when when I'm driving down the road and I and I pass a gas station And I see that blinking light in the window. That's the lottery if I only had that 400 million dollars What I could do if I only had a different job or a different boss, if I only had more time, I could do the things that I wanted to do. If I only had more time, I could play more video games. I could do the things that I want to do. Or a big one for me, if I only had more milkshake at the bottom of my cup, it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter the size of the milkshake, whether it's a small or whether it's the major sized milkshake, at the end of the milkshake, I always want more and I can always eat more. And this week we're going to look at the story of of a woman who had a lot of things to say if I only had about. We're told that she's a widow, so if she only had her husband, if she only had the, the money to pay this debt, if she didn't have this debt. In the last two weeks, we've been looking at what it means to have a bold faith, at what it means to be people of God who have a faith that can move mountains. What does it look like? What does it mean? And that first week, we studied Elijah when he called Elisha. And Elisha went out and he burned the plows. There was no going back for him. There was was no, uh, no going back. He would not return to being a farmer. He was going to be a prophet. And then last week, we looked at this idea of digging ditches. That God wants to to do this miracle, but he expects us to, in faith, work. To do the work that we need to do. To be invested in what he's about to do. So a faith that moves mountains is a faith that fully trusts and fully works. And so we're introduced to this widow in verse 1. He says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So we're introduced to who this this widow is, who this woman is. We're told that she's the wife of a prophet. Now, in that day, particularly in apostate Israel, in, in Israel where uh, people did not fear God for the most part, uh, they had this string of, of wicked kings, uh, it's kind of hard to make a living as a, as a prophet for the Lord when people don't serve the Lord. It's also hard to make friends when people don't serve the Lord and you're a prophet for the Lord and you're always telling them that what they're doing needs to change. So this prophet probably lived paycheck to paycheck. There wasn't a savings account. There wasn't a a 401k. uh, There was no inheritance to leave his family. And and it's believed that this particular prophet may have been uh, taking out this debt to actually support other prophets. And there was this, this Levitical law that said that creditors could take Debtors to be slaves if they could not pay their debt. And then at the year of Jubilee, that debt would be wiped out and, and they could go about their lives. So this prophet probably figured well, if, if it ever comes down to it, if I can't pay this debt, then I will be the one that go, goes into slavery. I will be the one that has to pay it off. But he died. And so he left this debt to be paid by his wife. She had to figure it out now. Otherwise, her sons were going into slavery. The thing is, in in that day, there was no employment opportunities for this woman. There was nothing she could go out and do to, to, to earn the money to pay this debt. And so it was looking like her sons were going into slavery. So she goes to the prophet. She goes to the prophet and I feel like she probably was so wrapped up in, well, my husband died, uh, I have no money, I have no job, my sons are going to be slaves. She was so caught up in the circumstances of her problem that, that Elisha was, well, you know, what do you want? What do you want me to do? What, what, what shall I do for you? Verse 2, he says, And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? Elisha asked her two questions. After all of this, he asked her two questions. What do you want? What do you want me to do? And what do you have? So I think this leads to the first thing that that we see in this story, that God wants to use what he has given us already to bless us and others greatly. If God didn't want us to use it, he wouldn't have given it to us in the first place. And it reminds me of the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And what we know about this story is that, that there was a master that was, was going on a long journey. As the, and this master decided he was going to leave these talents, his property to his servants, to invest, to grow. And so he gets back and he's going to settle his accounts. And he goes uh, to his servants. To the one servant, he gave five talents. To the, to the other servant, he gave two. And to the third, he gave one talent. And the first two servants, they doubled what he had given them. The one with five doubled it to ten. The one with two doubled it to four. And notice the response in verses 21 and 23 particularly. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice in verse 21, that's what he said to the, to the servant that doubled his five talents. To the servant that doubled his two talents, he says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master the response is the same. See, God doesn't judge us based on how much he has given us, but by how faithful we are in using what we have. See, I think the temptation for us is is to wish that we were the person with the five talents when we have only been given the one or the two. But what God has called us to do is to use what we have, to use it and see what happens? But the third servant, the one that, that only had one talent, he was afraid of his master. So not wanting to lose his talent, he decided to hide it. And this was the master's response to him. He said this in verses 27 and 28. Then you, have, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. God wants us to use what he has given us. He wants us to be faithful in what we have. I don't consider myself the most gifted youth director. or To be honest, for me, it seems like myth, uh, youth director is, is a misnomer. That's not exactly how I, how I view myself. I'm more like a, an older youth that needs uh, directing. Thankfully, where, where I lack, I have uh, some leaders that pick up the slack, that God has given them different gifts, um, particularly the look. They all have that gift, and whenever I think about doing something crazy or probably not well thought out, I just kind of have to look over at them and If they give me the look, that means it's probably not a good idea. Sometimes I do it anyways, but actually tonight we might be down a a couple of liters, Uh, so it might be that time that we finally are able to drink a soda through a sock. So uh, if you're going to be at youth group tonight, um, you might bring an extra pair of socks But what I lack in directing or administrating or or planning, God has has used me in other areas that I'm strong in, namely being a goofball and uh, having a heart for students, having a heart to see them know and to grow in their faith. See, God has has called me to be faithful in what he has given me and where I'm at. And the Bible is full of people that, that felt like they didn't have what they needed. But God uses them greatly. I think, of, I think of Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses couldn't public speak. But he had a staff and he, he had a brother who could speak for him. And, and God used him to deliver his people. I think of, of God using a, a little shepherd boy in a rock to bring down... A menacing giant. So what do you have? What do you have? That is the question that Elisha asks this widow. And she responds to him, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Nothing but a jar of oil. See, the way I see it, this woman had three assets. She had her two boys, she had a jar of oil. That's all she had that, that was worth anything. And obviously, she didn't want her sons to go into slavery, so that left only the oil. And it's, it, oil in that day was an important commodity. Those of you that know how to cook know that you can use olive oil in cooking. Those of you that don't cook well know that olive oil is also flammable but it's also a, they used it as a beauty product they would shine up their face before they went out out on the town at night uh, it was also used in religious ceremonies and in uh and in sacrifices and it was also used when kings were anointed in first Samuel 16, when Samuel goes to anoint King David, it says that, that he took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. See, when, Sam, when Samuel anointed David, he used the horn of oil. And at that point, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. See, oil in the Bible always symbolizes the Holy Spirit. So this widow may have thought that that her bit of oil was insignificant, that it wasn't enough, that it couldn't make a difference. But I think that leads us into our second thing that we see in this story, and that's that bold faith withholds nothing from God. Think of of Jesus when he's feeding the 5,000. We're told that it's 5,000 men, so there's probably... Uh, Roughly 15,000 people there. There's a lot of people there. And we pick up the story in in Mark chapter 6. And uh, Jesus has been teaching a long time, and the disciples are saying, Hey, we need to let these people go so they can go find some food so they can can eat tonight. And I find Jesus' response to them very interesting. He says, You give them something to eat. And they're like, well, should we go buy 200 denarii worth of food? Like, we can't, we can't provide bread for these people. And look what Jesus says to them. Look what Jesus asks them. How many loaves do you have? He asks them, what do you have? What do you have? Go and see. And we're told that there's a, there's a, there's a boy there a boy that may not have had the five talents or the two talents that that the disciples had, but he had a lunchbox. And in his lunchbox were five loaves of bread and two fish. Probably not enough food to feed even me. If I was in that crowd, no. (laughs) But he knew that in the hands of Jesus, could be used mightily scripture repeatedly teaches us that we when we give to god what we have we gain what we can't even fathom but it's scary right it's scary to withhold nothing from god we feel like when when we withhold nothing that we risk everything Naturally, we want to be that servant that that hides our talent, that that buries a hole and hides it away, afraid of losing it. We're this woman that that just has a bit of oil, and and we don't want to risk spilling it. But in verse 3, Elisha instructs this woman, to go borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought vessels to her. It's scary to withhold nothing from God. We don't want to risk Losing what we have. And so Elisha instructs her, he instructs her to borrow vessels and not too few. See, the measure of her faith would be measured in the amount of jars that she had borrowed. If she borrowed three, she'd fill three. If she if she borrowed five, she borrowed ten. But I find it interesting because it seems as if Elisha doesn't, doesn't play really an extraordinary part in this, this miracle. He, he gives her some instructions, but he tells her to go into her house and shut the door behind her and her two sons. He wasn't even there. He wasn't there. Whatever God wanted to do, whatever God had planned, was meant only for this woman and her sons. See, when we look at miracles in the Bible, they're they're meant to show the power and the might of God. When we look at Jesus' miracles, they demonstrate his authority. When we look at the apostles' miracles, they authenticated their message about Jesus. But we also shouldn't forget that that God is a God that cares about us individually particularly in our our times of need. And God wants to show himself to us. Maybe what we need to do is is we need to go into our homes with our families and and shut the door and, and ask God to show himself. Ask him for a miracle. Ask him for mercy. But don't withhold what we have. Offer what we have. See, at the beginning of this story, this woman appealed to Elisha based on her husband's faith. She said, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and and you know that your servant feared the Lord. You know that he was faithful to God. You know that he loved God. But it wasn't her husband's faith that was answered, it was hers. So she does what Elisha says. She goes in, she she starts to pour. And when one vessel fills up, they go to the next until all the vessels are full. And in verse six, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. And she came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. She went to Elisha and she told him what had happened. It's a miracle. All of my jars are full of oil. And he said, go, sell the oil, pay your debts. And not only that, live on the rest. See, when we think about Jesus feeding the 5,000, we also recognize that After feeding 15,000 people, there were 12 baskets of fish and and bread left over. In this story, we're told that she was given enough oil not only to, to pay her debt now, but for her needs in the future. God didn't just provide for her here and now. He knew what she needed going forward. God multiplied what she already had to give her what she needed. Which I think leads us to the third thing in this story, that when we walk by faith, we activate the Spirit's power in our lives. See, I don't think it's insignificant in this story and in the Bible that oil represents the Holy Spirit. And when she responded faithfully, it was the oil... That multiplied. And so Paul is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he's, he's talking to the Corinthians about how much of a struggle this life is. How it's such a pain, how how he groans because it's such a struggle, it's so hard. There's always troubles, there's always problems, there's always circumstances. And he's talking to them that, that we long for our heavenly dwelling. And in Second Corinthians chapter five, he says, "Who has given us the spirit as a guarantee? So we are always of good courage. God has given us the spirit as a guarantee, so we are always of good courage. But look at the parallel in verses 7 and 8, because he says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. Notice that parallel that the spirit and faith have in being courageous, in exercising a bold faith. Faith. If we want to have a bold faith, we can risk everything because we have the guarantee of the Spirit. It's not really a risk if you have the Spirit. It's not really a risk if you have a guarantee. But in verse 10, he finishes it out and he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due For what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And we all want that response to be well done, good and faithful servant. But it starts with a bold faith that withholds nothing from God. Just as the Israelites in Joshua chapter 1 sat outside the promised land, sat on on the side of the Jordan River looking into the promised land, and they were instructed to be bold and courageous. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's a guarantee. Just as Elisha asked those two questions, what do you want? What do you have? What we want will cost us what we have. If we want that heavenly dwelling, our earthly body is what it will cost us. If we want to gain what we cannot fathom, we must give up what we have. When troubles come, we often think of our deficiencies. We think of, of what we lack, of, of what we don't have. When we have medical issues, when we have an unexpected expense, when we lose our job, or we think, if I only had. I think the words, if I only had, run contrary to the faithfulness that God has already shown us in our lives. When we're uncertain of what God is doing in our lives, we think, if I only had the answers, or if I only had more faith. Hudson Taylor, the uh, Famous missionary to China in the 1800s had this to say. God is not looking for men of great faith. He is looking for common men to trust his great faithfulness. To be people of of bold faith, we don't need more faith. We simply need to use what we have. We simply need to trust God's faithfulness. Remember, faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. I think we make a mistake when we refer to our faith as weak or strong. Because our faith is as strong as the God that we put it in. So I think today, maybe we need to confess. Maybe we need to confess that That we think, if I only had. Maybe the confession is, is that we often say we can't because we don't have. We say we can't because we don't. We can't get involved because we don't have the time. Think about where we're at this morning. God has given us this this morning to be at church. God has given us this time. How can we invest in others during this time? How can we invest in other members of this church at this time? How can we get involved? Maybe what we need to do is we need to take an inventory. We need to think what do I have? Is it a passion? Or a love for something? Has God given us this desire for something? To and how can we use that for His kingdom? I remember when I was—I remember when I was in school when I was just a kid. There was this this woman, Betty, and I remember she would pick me and my brother up after school, and she would actually take us to Good News Club. It's not much, but she had a car. And she had a desire for kids to know Jesus. So she would pick us up and and she would take us to Good News Club. She would give us a ride. Maybe you have a home, a home that you can open up for a life group, a home that you can open up for foster kids. The question is, what do you have? Or lastly, maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a faith of your own this this widow referred to her husband's faith not even realizing her own faith maybe maybe what god wants to do is is get you alone so that he can he can move in you maybe you're feeling that spirit moving you to faith If that's you, if that's, if that's what you want and you want the Spirit's power in your life and, and you want him with you wherever you go, I'd, I'd love to, to speak with you after church or, or whatever and, and let you know how that is possible. But it starts with investing that faith, putting your faith in him.